0: Good evening, everyone. I have been asked to come and welcome you here uh, this evening. My name is Kate Powell. I'm a board member here at the library, and I'm also uh, chair of the Pratt Contemporaries, which is the Young Friends group. Um, We plan events throughout the year that would be appealing to younger people in their 20s, 30s, or 40s. We just hosted a reception just a few moments ago with with Bill German, so if there's someone in your life or yourself that might want to be Um, added to our mailing list, please let me know. I'd be happy um, to get you involved. Um, And actually for me, having Bill German here kind of brings things full circle. One of the first events that we had for the Pratt Contemporaries was um, at the Senator Theater in 2008 when they uh, screened the um, Martin, uh, the Scorsese film, Shine a Light which was a documentary about the Rolling Stones. I don't know if any of you are able to see that, but it was, a, it was wonderful. And tonight we're fortunate to, at least in my mind, to be able to, co- to continue to the discussion about the world's greatest uh, rock band with Bill German, author of Under Their Thumb, which is a memoir about how a nice boy from Brooklyn got mixed up with the Rolling Stones and lived to tell about it. Uh, And it's actually a perfect time to have him here to talk about his memories with the Rolling Stones, given that Keith Richards recently released his own memoir. Uh, So the band's obviously been in the news lately. And for those real, avid Rolling Stones fans that have already read both, it'll be an interesting um, comparison of the two. And I know that Bill has started to thumb through that book to sort of fact-check Keith's accounts of their time together so you know I think tonight coming into tonight I just thought to myself like you know how often does this happen your childhood dream writing about your favorite rock band not only comes true um, but you end up being uh, befriended by the group and brought into their inner sanctum and that's exactly what happened to Bill German and he became an eyewitness to the conflict between Mick and Keith and Ron's substance abuse and everything in between but as Bill will tell us tonight Um, Sometimes getting exactly what you want isn't exactly what you expected and what you thought it would turn out to be. So um, please join me in welcoming author Bill German.
1: Thank you. Thanks for coming on such a rainy night. I hope it'll be worth it. Um, So I uh, usually start uh, by reading the introduction of the book. Let's get started with the intro if I can find it. Here we go. Uh, You'll probably want to kill me when I say my only job in life was with the Rolling Stones. Even as a teenager, I wasn't mowing lawns, washing cars, or asking if you want fries with that. I was traipsing after my favorite rock band and writing about it in Beggar's Banquet, the newsletter I launched on my 16th birthday. When I published the first issue, I had no idea where it would lead or how it would dictate the course of my life. I shouldn't have been with the Stones in the first place. To be welcomed into their orbit, you have to bring something to their table. Drugs, sex, fame, or the ability to carry their luggage better than anyone else. But all I had was my stupid little newsletter. This is the story of how I made it into the stone's inner sanctum and how I crawled out. It's also about the overachievers and the underachievers, the groupies, the pushers, and the flunkies that I met along the way. People who dedicated their entire lives to remaining in that sanctum. Some of them are still there, and some of them got carried off in handcuffs or caskets. But all of us lived our dream of hanging with the Rolling Stones. Be careful what you wish for. I mean, I started out like any other fan, really. I mean, I still am just a regular fan, I think. Um, Growing up in Brooklyn, like it says on the title of the book, and um, just turned 48. So I was born in 1962, actually just a couple of months after the Stones came into creation. Uh, so it was almost like we were made for each other. But um, I did not hear of the Stones or hear the Stones for the first 10 years of my life. Um, you know, I just had an AM radio. My sister had her 45s, my older sister that I would hear, uh, you know, build me a buttercup and I think I love you, whatever. I mean, if you didn't have a Saturday morning TV show, I never heard of you. So that's why I heard of the Beatles and the Jackson 5 and the Monkees, but not the Rolling Stones. Well, uh, in the summer of 1972, my sister somehow went from loving Keith Partridge to loving Keith Richards. And um, she got all their albums, and one day uh, in the fall of 1972, when I was 10 years old, I hear the most violent sounds I've ever heard in my life, the craziest lyrics, and uh, it's the Get Your ya Out album blasting out of my sister's bedroom next door, and uh, you know, I was born in a crossfire hurricane. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And then the guy says, I popped a button on my trousers, hope my trousers don't fall down, now do you? I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, wow, that is the wildest stuff. My sister shows me the album covers, uh... And I was like, wow, these guys can definitely beat up the monkeys. And I was just instantly intrigued by these guys. They seemed like the coolest, most rebellious guys on earth. My sister starts telling me all these stories that, you know, uh, they've been busted for drugs and their concerts t- turn into riots and someone was actually killed at one of their concerts. How cool is that? So I was like, I, I want to go see them and, uh, you know, I, I want to own every album. And as luck would have it, my sister moved on from Keith Richards to, like, Neil Diamond or whatever uh, and sold me all her Stones albums for a buck a piece. And now I had a whole Stones collection for, like, $10. And I just devoured everything about the Stones, books, albums, uh, you know, bootlegs, everything that I could possibly get my hands on. You know, obviously not at age 10, but, you know, by the time I started to be, like, 12 and 13 and 14, And um, I wanted to be like the writers that were in Rolling Stone magazine or Cream magazine or some of the DJs that I heard on the radio uh, in New York City. I I was like, wow, these guys get paid to hang out with the Stones. That's for me. So at age 16, I decided to start my own newsletter or a fanzine, uh, as they used to call it. I guess they still call it. There's, uh, look how professional. All right. That's actually issue number two. Issue number one looked even worse than that. Um, Well, you know what? That's actually what fanzines look like. So, you know, I was 16 years old when I did it. It was actually my 16th birthday when I started the first issue. And, um, you know, obviously back then you, you know, there was no such thing as point and click or whatever or, you know, cut and paste literally meant to cut and to paste (laughs) scissors and glue, and, um, you know, to get the big fancy headlines, I had to, you know, write it myself, and, and all that, Um, and then the other, and I just decided to do this on my own, with, like, no, you know, major news or anything, Uh, the Keith Don't Go thing was uh, referring, this is uh, September, October 1978. Uh, the Keith Don't Go was referring to the fact that Keith uh, was possibly going to go to prison for the rest of his life for uh, heroin possession, or actually heroin trafficking. But um, And then uh, Stones Live from New York was that the Stones were just on Saturday Night Live in October of 1978. So I was just writing about stuff. I mean, I wasn't giving you any more information than TV Guide, you know, wrote about them being on Saturday Night Live or anything, and obviously it looked like crap, my little fanzine, but, um, uh, you know, the thing is, once I typed it all up and wrote the little cover, I had nowhere to print it, you know, nowadays, you just, you know, again, you point and click or whatever, and it comes out on your printer at home, or you can go to Kinko's. Back then, there were no Kinko's on the corner. If you wanted to get something copied, you had to go to a library or a bank because those are the guys who had the copy machines. And for a dime, you you know you put in your thing on the glass and you it know, um, takes about a minute for the horrible-looking copy to come oozing out. Um, and I tried that, and it just looked terrible. And I remembered I had a friend who worked in the mimeograph room at the high school, at my high school, and he got me in after hours. He was a a student volunteer, had the keys, and so he snuck me in there, and that's how I ran off the early copies. And so, you know, it looked terrible. I'm sure it read terribly, but at least it smelled great. So anyway, I decided to charge 25 cents, and I tried to peddle it in my high school and uh, got no takers. In fact, I recently bumped into a guy from back then thousand nine hundred and seventy eight uh, you know a friend of mine from back then he claims that I paid him a quarter to take a copy so i don 't know if that 's true or not, but really early on, my circulation was my paid circulation was like one or two or three, um, but I stuck with it. Um, because like I said, I wanted to be a journalist like the guys in Rolling Stone Magazine or Cream Magazine. And so I never gave up and I pursued it like a real journalist. And I was taking journalism in high school. I was lucky that my high school offered a journalism, uh, program. And, uh, you know, so I aspired to be this great rock and roll journalist. And so I never gave up and I approached it as a journalist by developing sources. The newsletter, you know, improved a little bit, um, the, the lettering there uh like where it says Charlie Watts Boogie Woogie Boy that was done with a thing called Letra Set I don't know if anybody's heard of that rub on letters so that's how I did that uh but anyway so it was starting to get a little more professional in terms of how it looked but also um in terms of you know the content of what I was writing and see I was a teenager but I knew grown-ups who used to see the stones around town um I was living in New York City, actually Brooklyn, um, and the Stones were all living in New York City too, in Manhattan. They all had apartments. Well, not all of them, I should say. Mick and Keith and Ronnie Wood were all living there, and they would go out at least two or three nights a week to these nightclubs and sometimes even get on stage. And I got to know some of these grown-ups who could get into these clubs and would tell me what happened. And so. Here I am, this teenage kid, 16, 17 years old, and I am scooping Rolling Stone magazine with simple little things like, hey, you know, Keith showed up last night and played with so-and-so, or Ronnie Wood showed up at the Ritz or whatever. And so um, it just kind of snowballed from there. And I realized that eventually I would get to meet the Rolling Stones because everyone I knew was getting to meet them you know at least that's what it seemed like and so I found out that they were having a party for their emotional rescue album uh and it was 1980 I was 17 years old and I show up and I figure I I mean I wasn't on the guest list I had no connections but I figure let me show up I mean I'm proud of the newsletter it's looking good and my only goal is just to show them the newsletter. That's all I want from them. I don't want an autograph. I don't want my picture with them. I just want to hand them the newsletter. That's it. So I show up to this nightclub, which was called Danseteria. And uh, like I said, I'm 17 years old there. And that's me in the background. And uh, Keith in the foreground. And of course, note, note the bottle of Jack Daniels that he pilfered from the party. And so, like I said, my goal was just to wait for the Stones to come out of the party. That's on 38th Street in Manhattan. And uh, a bunch of people were, like, surrounding Keith. So I, like, zoned in on Ronnie Wood. And so uh, he is cut off in that picture. But that's his hand reaching out for an issue. And I am handing him an issue. And, like I said, that's me, 17 years old. And it was two days after my high school graduation. And so I like to think that I had two graduations that week. But this one was the more impact on my life and um and they took the issue Ron Wood looked at it and he was like oh yeah really nice really nice you know and I knew he was just humoring me but he takes it into the limousine and for some reason the windows were open and uh I saw him and Keith looking over my little fanzine and for a 17 year old kid that was pretty heady stuff and uh I don't know if they knew how old I was I mean I was pretty tall for a teenager um But they must have realized I was, like, barely shaving, you know. So they must have known I was young, and then the newsletter itself had, like, this exclusive information in it. I had a preview of their new album, um, again, just from sources that I had developed. So I knew it was just a matter of time. Yes? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Um, That's the thing. I did not know that this photo was taken at the time that it was taken. It was taken by a paparazzo photographer that was just standing there waiting to get pictures of the stones. And uh, I mean, many, many years later, I happened to be going through this guy's files, this photographer's files. And I stumble onto this photo. And I was like, oh my God, the moment that I met the Rolling Stones for the first time ever is captured in a photo. And, and there it is. And for years, I knew that if and when I ever did a book about my experiences with the stones, I would call it Under Their Thumb. That is sheer coincidence that Keith has his thumb sticking out like he's hitchhiking. And I just said, oh, my God, that is the cover of the book. So there you go. And that's how that wound up being the cover. And it was just like a, a fantastic coincidence. And uh, in a way, that picture like just um, it personifies what the book is about, the accessibility of the stones and the fact that... It, uh, I got to know them in New York City. I mean, it's just a real New York City scene. I mean, uh, you might not be able to see it close, you know, uh, that well here, but it's like uh, there's a sign up there that says Towaway Zone or something like that. You know, and just I love Keith walking around the streets of New York with that <laughs> bottle of Jack. So um, I then, um, you know, was so inspired by the fact that they like seemed to like the newsletter, albeit for a minute or two. Um, that I said, I gotta keep giving it to them and giving it to them. So I uh, started going up to their record company, which was called Rolling Stones Records. And they had an office in Rockefeller Center right near the skating rink. And I just walked in, I mean, this is the days when there's no security. And so a kid could just walk into an office building I mean, if you go into an office building in Manhattan now, I mean, forget it. You need photo ID. You need an appointment and all that just to get on the elevator. Me, I just breezed right in, go into Rolling Stones records and present them with my fanzine. Hi, I'm, you know, 17, 18 years old. And I got a fanzine about the Stones and I hope you give it to them. And they told me that they did, which I figured they were just humoring me. But uh, once I turned 18... I became legal drinking age in New York back then it 's now twenty one but back then it was eighteen and so I was able to go to these nightclubs and eventually see the stones myself and hand them the issue myself there and um, and I found out uh, that 's Keith with um, his now wife Patty Hansen, girlfriend there and um, the thing is i uh, Again, I, I did not want anything from them i didn 't want a, you know an autograph or anything and This was taken by another paparazzi photographer who happened to be at uh, this club and uh, I just wanted to give them the latest issue and uh, The thing is, apparently they were getting issues from rolling stone 's records the, you know all their managers and people were indeed giving it to them and uh, so you know when I would see Keith at these clubs, he would be very nice and you know he would say something like, "Yeah, man, you know." I really dig it. I I love reading it on the can, you know. It's it's like, wow, man, I'm like 18 years old and like the Stones are telling me that they read my newsletter and they like it. He's reading it on a can, you know. It it was just, you know, it really inspired me and they were so nice to me and so like I felt like there's no way I'm giving this up. I just got to keep going with this. You know, and Ronnie too, he would get the issues and so, you know, he would say, oh yeah, I've got this one already. Where's the next one? And, you know, Like I said, you know, for a teenager to have this happen, it just like, wow, really inspired me. Well, right, I was living at my parents' house. So, and, you know, and so my circulation did go up from the one, two, or three that it was in the early days. Um, But, you know, a year and a half, two years in, I started to get subscribers. And the way that I did that was, number one, was through word of mouth. Um, But also... Uh, by taking ads out, like in the back of magazines. So if you took a classified ad in the back of Rolling Stone, a teensy-weensy little ad, like one sentence, it would cost like 200 bucks or something. But it was worth it for me, and I would actually call up... I mean, I look back now, like, wow, I was pretty entrepreneurial for you know, a 19, 20-year-old kid, uh, or 18, 19, um, to call up Rolling Stone magazine and say, hey, when are you putting the stones on the cover next? And they would give me the date... And I said, okay, I'm going to take one of these little tiny classified ads that say, hey, subscribe to Beggar's Banquet, you know, and so it just took off from that. You know, one of those little ads would bring in like 100 or 200 subscribers. So before I knew it, I had a few hundred subscribers, you know, sending their money to me to my bedroom essentially, and I would mail out the copies. And I was very responsible with that kind of thing and keeping track of all the subscriptions. And uh, no, then I raised it to. There was a point, actually, where I was charging $0.35 cents plus a $0.15 cent stamp. Stamps were $0.15. Cents. And so right, I would get that sent to me in my bedroom, you know, a quarter and a dime, scotch tape and a and a postage stamp, $0.15 cents at the time. And uh, and that's how I would do it. And then I would say, you know, I, I would lure them in like a, like a drug deal. Lure, lure them in with one issue, a sample issue, and then say, hey, if you want a subscription, it'll be $3 for six issues. And so, you know, and eventually the price went up and up, you know. Well, really not that much, actually. Um, I remember when it went up to $4, sometimes people would send me a $5 bill. And I would make change in the mail because that's how (laughs) honest I was back then. And still am, I think. But anyway, so, um, you know, I was, like, really inspired, like I said. And um, the Stones then go on tour in 1981 behind their Tattoo You album. And uh, so that's one of the issues from that tour. And I wound up going to about a dozen shows, traveling a bit. I mean, I was making enough money to do that, actually, and not much else. You know, I mean, the fact that I lived with Mommy and Daddy really helped. And so whatever money I made from, you know, my circulation, went back into the business of going to see the Stones. And uh, at age 19, you know, the 1981 tour, I was 19 years old. I'd never even been on an airplane, but the Stones got me to go on an airplane. At age 19, I saw them in Florida and Atlanta. They played a small theater in Atlanta. I saw their farewell, uh, their finale um, in uh, Virginia, Hampton Roads, uh, and that's the one. It's like a YouTube sensation, apparently, with Keith. Uh, well, a guy charges a stage, a fan rushes on stage. Keith sees this guy. It was Keith's birthday uh, that night, and it's on pay-per-view. Was on pay-per-view. That's why it's now on YouTube. And Keith takes off his guitar and just slams the guy in the head and puts his guitar back on and keeps playing. You know, like nothing happened, man. You know, took care of that guy. And um, so I was at that show and you know put it in the newsletter and all that. And so again, you know, this is the pre-internet era. It was you know pre-computers, everything. So for me to rush out an issue is like, hey, you you know. Keith slammed this guy in the head with a guitar last week. So, you know, I was scooping the magazines that I grew up worshiping, like Rolling Stone and Cream. I was actually scooping them. So, yeah, that issue is from 1981. And um, the way that I was able to see all those shows, a dozen shows, in the fall of 1981 was uh, by walking into uh, the kitchen and informing my parents that I was quitting NYU where I was majoring in journalism, and that was a great conversation to have. Uh, but once we picked Mom up off the floor, um, you know they got used to it. and you know I, I was just telling someone earlier that my parents uh, like gave me so much rope. I mean, I actually dedicate the book to them and some other people, but dedicated it to my parents, and I say, for giving me enough rope. Uh, and I sometimes think maybe it was reverse psychology that you know, they were like, all right, you want to quit school to follow the, a rock band, to follow the Rolling Stones? Like, okay. You know, I mean, they weren't happy about it at first, but they like warmed up to the idea. And, you know, it was maybe reverse psychology and it worked because ultimately they never got the phone call from the cops, you know, come pick up your kid. Um, You know, I I wound up being a pretty responsible kid. I never did the drugs or anything like that. and And so... All right, if they use reverse psychology, I guess it worked. Um, But I did drop out of NYU and never went back. But uh, I guess it paid off uh, because things just kind of snowballed with the Stones. They got to know me, uh, you know, at that show where Keith hit the guy with the guitar. Um, That was Keith's birthday show, and there was, like, a party for Keith backstage. And I got to go to there because, like, the Stones already kind of knew who I was. And uh, and the people that worked for them knew – who I was. And so, uh, you know, things are starting to come together. And then one day in 1983, uh, my phone rings. uh, And at this point, I'm now living in Manhattan. I just moved out from my parents' house. Living in Manhattan, by the way, in an apartment uh, that was given to me by Keith Richards, pharmacist. And he really was a pharmacist. And that's what Keith loved about him. And there's a whole chapter about him in there. He was also a Talmudic scholar, by the way, who wound up Hanging out with Keith Richards and scoring Keith Richards' drugs. I mean, that's part of what my book is about. Is it's all these crazy contradictions and almost like Spinal Tap kind of situations. But anyway, so I'm living in that apartment from Keith Richards' pharmacist, and uh, my phone rings, and it's the Stones' management, and they're telling me that um, that Mick and Keith, you know, love the newsletter, and. They want it to become their official newsletter. They're going to advertise it in their next album. And you will, you know, you'll get to hang out with the Stones. You'll go to their houses and their recording sessions. You'll get to interview them, uh, travel around the world with them, et cetera, et cetera. Is that okay with you? So, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. So next thing I know, I'm interviewing Mick Jagger at his house. Uh, oh, well, no, wait. First, that's the ad that uh, was put, placed in every copy of the Undercover album that came out in 1983. So if you have that on vinyl to this day and you didn't throw out that flyer, that's it. And um, you can't read the fine print there. But you had to send your money to Los Angeles. And I wound up getting paid like a salary from the people out in Los Angeles that were dealing with the Stones. And so, yeah, that's a flyer that was in a million copies of Undercover. And so my little thing that I started in my pajamas, uh, you know, is now being advertised to everybody that buys that album. So it was pretty heady stuff, to be honest with you. Um, and then, yes, like I said, I, uh, next thing I know, I'm at Mick's house. That is not taken in Mick's house. That's at some nightclub, obviously. And, uh, and that's some bodyguard on the left. I don't know who he was. I never saw him before or after. So. Um, but anyway... Uh, so I interview Mick at his house. He was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, 81st Street and West End Avenue. And, uh, it was, you know, it was an okay interview. Mick is not as good an interview as Keith, to be honest. Mick could sometimes give you, like, these one-sentence answers or even, like, a one-word answer. Whereas Keith will go on and on and on, which is great. You know, Keith will give you his philosophy on life, where Mick would just, you know, he'll answer the question. You know, that's about it, right? So, um... But the interesting thing is, uh, Mick, uh, gives me a glass of orange juice. Uh, actually Jerry Hall, his girlfriend, living girlfriend gives me the glass of orange juice and we go upstairs, me and Mick, we go up to his den on the fifth floor. And, uh, well, when we enter the room, actually, the window is open. We hear these young girls like shrieking and screaming, like, well, what's going on? And, um, I mean, you'd think that, there would be a law against this, but Mick Jagger was living next door to an all-girl school. <laughs> um, and so it must have been recess, and, you know, and Mick said that, it must be recess, I guess. And it, it was a wonderful neighborhood, Upper West Side, but he's saying it can get a bit noisy sometimes. Um, so I'm interviewing Mick, and part of the interview I... Uh, I ask him, what records are you listening to right now? He says, right, good one, let me check, Bill. And he gets up and he's uh, flipping through his LPs and he's telling me at that time he's listening to Herbie Hancock, just came out, you know, Rocket. And uh, and I figure, okay, well, while he's looking at his LPs, this will really round out my piece. Let me see what books he's reading. So I get up to look at the bookcase. And as I do that, I accidentally knock over the glass of orange juice that I had at my feet. And I am now watching my Minute made O.J. pour all over Mick Jagger's 16th century Persian rug. This is my first visit to his house. And I'm like, oh, my God. And now he was in this alcove where his LPs were. And so I'm like peeking into the alcove, uh, Mick, 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 and he's not there. I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm just standing over there, o- over this puddle, this orange puddle, not sure what to do. And, uh, Couple of seconds goes by and go by, and Mick comes in with a towel. He had seen the whole thing, and now he is on his hands and knees, blotting up my mess. And that's a vision I will never forget the rest of my life. And but that was the day after my 21st birthday, and uh, yeah, I will never forget that. But you know what? He he couldn't have been more gracious about it, actually. Um, I was so apologetic, like, oh, my God, please, please, I'm so sorry. Please don't tell Jerry Hall, your living girlfriend. He's like, no, don't worry about it. Besides, this is my room. So I was like, wow. (laughs) He was like, really nice. Um, The other interesting thing about the interview was um, the phone rang, and the answering machine didn't pick up, and no one else picked up, so it just kept ringing and ringing. And finally, he picks it up, but he puts on, like, a strange voice. If I'm not mistaken, it sounded like an old Spanish lady. And says, Hello? And um, and then quickly he changed uh, Yeah, hang on. She's downstairs. And it was for Jerry Hall. And uh, I, I then realized that I, I'm pretty sure that Mick Jagger screens his phone calls by pretending to be his own cleaning lady. Uh, I don't know. So... Um, as if interviewing Mick for three hours at his house wasn't good enough for me on the day after my 21st birthday, I, uh, I then go to interview Keith later that same day at the Stones office in Rockefeller Center. And Keith was great. Uh, and like I said, he can go on and on and on, which is great, but sometimes you have to cut him off because you're not going to get to all your questions. Um, so some of the things that Keith talked to me that, uh, well, it did become night, so I was like. Uh, early evening into the night, was um, talk to me about John Belushi, because he knew Belushi. Uh, I I don't know at the time if a lot of people knew that, but, uh, and Belushi had just died a few months before, you know, I was interviewing Keith, and I knew that Keith knew Belushi, and that he was with John Belushi, like, you know, like two weeks or so before that fateful night at the Chateau Marmont, you know, and uh, I said, Keith, were you surprised, uh, about Belushi's death and he said um, that he was not surprised but uh, that John Belushi reminded him of Brian Jones because uh, they had a kind of like an insatiable overdo it kind of attitude and everybody around them knows it but you can't say anything to them because if you do they'll only overdo it more and I guess that is what happened with John Belushi um Keith also, I got him to open up about his estranged father. It had been just a few months before my interview that Keith reconnected with his father, Bert. They were estranged for 20 years when his parents got divorced. Uh, You know, his dad moved out, and Keith just lost touch with him, and Keith became famous. You know, this is like uh, in the early 60s, 1962, actually. Keith's parents got divorced, and uh, Keith just lost touch with his dad, and... uh, Finally, reconnected with his dad, and here is Keith Richards, the big rock star, but was so nervous to meet his father, and so he told me a little bit about that. Um, what else did he tell me that day? Um, well, it, it was a pretty good interview. He taught, talked to me about child rearing and stuff like that. Again, you know, I did some of these things I didn't even ask him about, but he just starts philosophizing. But the interesting thing is the interview ended um, at about 9 o'clock at night. And we had to take the freight elevator to leave. And um, as we're waiting, it's me and Keith and uh, his manager, Jane Rose, who's still his manager. And we're waiting for the freight elevator. And uh, a guy comes up with a a mop and pail. And he's obviously one of the porters uh, from the building. And he's waiting for the elevator also. And Keith starts up a conversation with this guy uh hey man how you doing uh, your daughter started school right uh, it's like wow Keith like kind of knows this guy obviously and they carry on the conversation in the elevator and uh I realized that I got more insight or as much insight into Keith Richards character in those three minutes on the elevator as I did in my three hours of the interview uh, and that's the kind of guy Keith is and um You know, not to disparage Mick, but I don't think Mick goes around talking to the porters in the building, you know. That's just Mick. Um, So, um, you know, getting back to Mick, though, I should say um, that he has a nice side and a not-so-nice side. And in my book, actually, uh, I have a chapter called A Nice Bunch of Guys, and it's all about Mick. uh, Because there are days when he can be really nice and days when he could be not-so-nice. That's uh me and Keith looking over the first issue of the new the first official issue of the newsletter. Again, I don't know if you could see it from where you're sitting, but there's a bottle of Jack Daniel's close by. So always Jack Daniel's close by. Um but yeah, like I said, Keith um you know, he is a man of the people. He will talk to anybody and uh you know, the generosity he showed to me was just tremendous. So, anyway, so that's the first official issue. And so if you ordered if you joined their the Stone Span club from that flyer and sent in for the subscription to the newsletter, you got, you know, that's the first issue that you got. And so that's uh Mick and Keith at Mick and, at uh Keith's wedding where Mick was actually the best man. And uh, as you could see, I have Mick and Keith discuss undercover. That was my interview with each one of them. So, uh the thing is kind of joining up with the organization now, it was a trade-off. Yes, I got great access. I was able to, you know, go to their houses now and interview them. And, you know, God, being advertised in one of their albums, it's, like, phenomenal. But it meant that they kind of had a say into what went in and didn't go into the newsletter. And so as someone that was an aspiring journalist, you know, that was a little frustrating. And I had to submit all my stuff to uh, the Stones and their lawyers and accountants and everybody uh, before I could go to print. So I was still doing everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a long, complicated story of how uh, the money was done and all that. But yes, they they were basically paying for everything, but I was the guy behind it. So I was literally the guy that... No, <laughs> it was still a one-man operation. I mean, I made it really affordable for them, I guess, because it was just me. I wish I had a staff, and maybe I could have asked for one, because, right, it's the frickin' Rolling Stones. They could probably afford it. But, um, but no, it was just me, and I, I was still doing the newsletter with all the same principles that I did before it became official and all that, um, except that my circulation jumped from, like, 3,000 to 20,000 in a couple of months because of that ad and the album. And, um, and now I got, like, some color on the cover, and I was allowed to use the tongue. And, uh, you know, they did that new logo for me, the masthead and all that stuff. But, no, I, it was still a one-man operation. I was still doing everything. Um, so that actually, that photo was not my first choice. My first choice was to use the same photo of Mick and Keith that was on that flyer that was in the album. And, you know, a million people had already seen that photo. And, uh, and uh, that's the one that I put on the cover, but I submitted to the Stones organization. Everyone is fine with it, except for Mick, who's like, you know, stop the presses. You know? And he didn't like that photo, and so I had to switch out to this one. So, you know, and I guess changing your mind is a rock star's prerogative. I don't know. But the thing is, Mick had like a couple of months to think about it and then decides while it's being printed, that He doesn't like it, and so I had to switch out to that. And actually, the printer did print, you know, over twenty thousand copies of the cover that Mick didn't like. And you better believe he's charging for it, the printer. So the Stones had to pay for that because Mick decided he didn't like the picture that a million people had already seen. So, um, so that was my first inkling that hmm, this is the trade-off. Uh, and then uh, another Mick thing. You know, Mick was the one who was the tightest about some of this stuff. The Stones were down in Mexico City right around this time shooting some videos for their undercover album. And uh, they were guests of honor at a party down there. And they all show up except for Mick. And that's exactly how I worded it. All the Stones were there except for Mick. Well, Mick doesn't like that because Mick doesn't want it to be... He doesn't want to be conspicuous by his absence. And the reason behind that is, uh, shall we say, Mick was... Uh, pursuing some outside taco down there in Mexico City, which would be fine if he was a carefree single guy, but his living girlfriend, Jerry Hall, was back home in New York, seven seven months pregnant with their first child. And so he didn't want it known that he was not at this party, so I was told to reword it, and so I did, and I did that by just writing, uh, Keith and Ronnie and Bill and Charlie attended the party. Period. You know, and Jerry Hall can connect her own dots. You know, I work for Mick now. And so then a similar thing with Bill Wyman, who overall, I would have to say, you know, was pretty easygoing, And he never really made any demands on me. But he, uh, he came to New York. Like I said, you know, Mick, Keith, and Ronnie were the ones that were living in New York. Bill and Charlie were always in England. But Bill came over to do a uh, concert uh, that was known as the Arms Benefit. And so, if you can read it from where you are, you see uh, my clever little uh, headline there Arms Build Up. Uh, But anyway, that was about like this all star concert that took place uh, that Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts and a whole bunch of other people like Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton took part in. Anyway, so um, I went to a party after that concert in New York, and Bill Wyman introduced me to his girlfriend, a very nice woman named Kelly. And a picture was taken of them, and I put it in the issue, or I want to put it in the issue. And uh, Bill Wyman says no. And the reason is, well, this woman, Kelly, was just Bill Wyman's New York girlfriend. And he didn't want the one in New York to know about the one in L.A. He didn't want the one in L.A. to know about the one in San Francisco. He didn't want the one in San Francisco to know about the one in London. So Bill Wyman basically told me, don't print any pictures of me with anybody. So I was like, okay, Bill. And then there was Keith's manager, Jane Rose, uh, who was also very nitpicky, and she made me take out the word stumbled. I wrote something like, uh, Keith stumbled into Max's, you know, to see Buster Poindexter or something like that. You know, he went to some nightclub and he stumbled in there, you know, and she said, no, no, take that out. I'm like, wait, you know, stumbled. It's just a figure of speech. He stumbled in there. And she was like, No. Stumbled might imply that Keith was stoned, and we wouldn't want anyone to think that. So, you know, despite the hassles that I had from, you know, their lawyers and managers and whatever, or Mick, um, I did get to be pretty close with Keith and Ronnie. And um, it was at a time in their career where they weren't really sure what was happening, you know, if the stones would keep going on. Uh, that a lot of that had to do with the rift that Mick and Keith started to have in the early '80s, um, and they kind of needed guy friends. Keith and Ronnie, um, you know, they they had their wives and they had some babies. Well, well, Ronnie Wood had a baby at that time. Keith didn't, um, but they kind of needed guy friends, I think. And so they let me hang out. And uh, when they were recording their Dirty Work album, which I know wasn't one of the best Stones albums, but um, they invited me up to the sessions in New York. That's us there, uh, taking like five o'clock in the morning. We're looking at the latest issue of Becker's Banquet, um, and that was at a studio called RPM. And um, Keith told me that I could stop up anytime, you know, Bill. Man, come up anytime as long as Brenda's not there. I'm like Brenda, who is Brenda? Well, it turns out that Brenda was Keith's nickname for Mick, and it was not. <laughs> it was not a term of endearment. And um, the thing is, this was the summer of 1985. And at that point, Keith wanted to stab Mick in the eyeballs because (laughs) he had so much anger towards Mick. Because Mick wanted wanted to and then did go solo in 1985. Mick released a solo album where Keith has always put the stones number one in his life. And Keith resented that Mick went solo. Um, And so Keith and Ronnie and... You know the guys in the studio referred to Mick as Brenda, so that was their little code word, and so I couldn't be there when Mick was there because what had happened was uh, these two camps developed, and so there was the Mick camp and the Keith camp, and a uh, you know a real line in the sand there, and so I was obviously in the Keith camp, and so there would be problems if a Keith camper was there when Mick was there, and vice versa too actually, and Keith hated some of the guys that Mick was bringing up when Keith wasn't around. I mean, that's the thing. Mick and Keith were very rarely in the studio at the same time during these sessions. Um, but if they were, you, you know, they could not bring their own friends in or it would just cause a bigger fight. But, you know, Mick was bringing in guys like uh, Duran Duran, who Keith despised. But, you know, Mick was always into the flavors of the month. And Duran Duran was like the number one band at that time. And so Mick wants to hang out with them. And Keith, you know... I couldn't figure it out. It's like, you're Mick Jagger. You started the Rolling Stones. You know, we've been around for, you know, 20 some odd years at that point. Why are you, you know, giving the time of day to Duran Duran? Which Keith referred to them as deranged, deranged for some reason. I don't And so um, Keith, on the other hand, was bringing up some of these old blues guys that he felt, you know, were part of the Stones lineage. Um, like Don Covey. If you, you know, uh, he's not a household name, but Don Covey, a great R&B singer who, uh, he actually wrote the song Chain of Fools for Aretha Franklin. So he came up and sang a lot of stuff uh, or background. And this other guy, Bobby Womack, who used to play with um, Sam Cooke. And those were Keith and Ronnie's friends for the summer of 1985. And when I would go up to the studio, it would be great to, you know, hang out with all those guys with Keith and Ronnie and guys like, you know, Don Covey and Bobby Womack, these, you know, rhythm and blues legends. Um, but like I said, Mick and Keith were hardly ever there at the same time, and, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I was just alluding to Keith hating some of the friends that Mick would invite. Keith wrote this sign, stop, this is a closed session, do not enter, no exceptions, even if you met Mick or Ronnie in a club and they said call in, do not enter. Skull and crossbones, right, and then at the bottom, have a nice day. (laughs) So uh, somehow or another, they got that album done. But the interesting thing is, um, you know, Mick, because he went solo, he, like, did not have anything left to give to the Rolling Stones. And so he wasn't really writing songs for this album. It was Keith and Ronnie who basically were writing these songs on the fly. While they were in the studio, they would come up with songs – And lyrics and music and all that and and some incredibly violent stuff that was all addressed to Mick. And so that's why that album has songs on it like One Hit to the Body and um, I Want to Fight, which got uh, shortened to just fight. But yeah, Um, another one called I've Had It With You. And so Keith was writing these songs for Mick and then Mick would come into the studio and sing them about himself, not realizing it. And they had another one on there which got left off the album. Um, Ron Wood actually did on one of his solo albums uh, called I'm Going to Knock Your Teeth Out One by One. So there's just like a lot of anger going on. And like I said, it all started because Mick decided to go solo. And uh, Keith really resented that. So, you know, the Stones kept sort of going, I guess. They didn't really know what was happening. With the group, were they going to break up after the Dirty Work album? Who knows? Or were they going to tour? I mean, Keith wanted them to tour. Mick sends them a telegram saying, I I don't want to tour with you guys. And that, like, made things even worse. And their fight starts to pour out into the press. Uh, Keith says, you know, if Mick tours without the Stones, I'll slit his throat. You know, all this stuff going on. But in the middle of all that, one of the founding members of the Stones, Ian Stewart, now he wasn't one of the, you know, core five guys, but he, when the Stones originally formed, they were a six-piece band, and they had a piano player named Ian Stewart. Uh, Well, he passes away in 1985, in December of 1985, and he had no enemies, you know, so all the Stones united um, in London for a memorial for him, and I flew over like I said, the Stones got me to do a lot of things I had never done before. It was my first time overseas. I got my passport just to go see this show uh, in February 1986 in London. And uh, it was really just supposed to be some kind of memorial tribute. But um, the instruments were there. It was a, there was a stage. Uh, it was um, 200 invited guests only. It was just friends and family. Keith and Ronnie told me to come. And, uh, you know, I knew that there was the specter of a Rolling Stones gig, you know, possibly, even though Mick and Keith, you know, wanted to kill each other. But you never know, in the name of Ian Stewart. So, I mean, it was mind-boggling to think about, well, sure as heck, all five Stones get on stage. And, you know, as a fan, as a journalist, it was mind-blowing. They did songs that, um, that were not stone songs. So, Uh, It was just like all these old blues covers that Ian Stewart would have loved. And as if it wasn't incredible enough to see that, they then have some friends get up on stage with them, including here, Pete Townsend. And you could see uh, on the wall there, it says 100. It was a 100 Club on Oxford Street in London, um, which I hear might close, actually, which would be pretty sad. Um, And yeah, there's Keith and Ronnie in the background. And so Pete Townsend comes up, and then Jeff Beck comes up, and Eric Clapton comes up, and Jack Bruce comes up. And, uh, I mean, if anybody ever asks me, what's your favorite Stones concert of all time, you're looking at it. February 23rd, 1986. So while the Stones were in London, they also received a Grammy Award that week, and I was still in town. This was a Grammy that uh, they were definitely getting because it was a Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, mind you, the Stones had never won a Grammy Award in their whole history. They were, you know, like 20-some-odd years, 22 years of recorded music. And then they're getting a Lifetime Achievement Award from them. So the Stones were, like, not that pleased about it. You know, normally that award is given to someone that they have to wheel out with an oxygen tank, you know, some, like, 90-year-old composer or something. But the Stones are getting it, and they went for it because it was a good way to promote their album. And so they agreed to accept the award live in London. But now, because of the time difference, they would have to do it at 3 o'clock in the morning. So they did, and uh, I was there for that. And then uh, afterwards, that's Keith and I leaving Uh, This club, which is called the Roof Garden Club, which is where they uh, did the telecast from. And by now, it's like 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. And uh, Keith came up to me at the end of the night or morning, early morning, and puts his arm around me and says, uh, William, you're coming with me. I was like, well, where are we going? We are going to Eric Clapton's house. And so next thing I know, I am in a limo with Keith and Ronnie. Bill Graham, the promoter, was there also. And we go to Eric Clapton's house. Or actually, uh, just like his crash pad, just a flat that he had in London. It wasn't like his big estate out in the country. Just a crash pad, which it turns out he was going to be moving out of the following day. And in fact, Keith and Ronnie, Keith said to Ronnie, um, Hey, Ronaldo, man, we're going to tear the place apart, man, you And so we show up, and there's no furniture there. There's just, like, a couple of, like, crates to sit on and a bunch of booze. Um, There's crates of booze, actually, and uh, of Jack Daniels. So uh, we're hanging out. It was pretty interesting. And for some reason, I mean, Clapton was a very gracious host. But he started, uh, like, asking me all these questions about me, like how old I was, which I was very apprehensive in telling people how old I was because I thought it could be used against me for being so young, hanging out with the stones and all the people around them. Uh, and I, but I was 23, and Clapton pegged it. He actually said, I bet you're 23. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, he was really nice. And so um, the night or morning comes to an end. It's like 7 o'clock in the morning. Keith and Ronnie are going to leave, and I'm going to leave. Clapton walks us to the door, and he says, uh, hey, you know, before you go – I got all this booze here, and if you guys don't take it, I'm just going to leave it for the landlord. And with that, Keith and Ronnie went back into the living room, <laughs> and they had these big winter coats on. It was February, and they just started putting bottles of Jack Daniels into their pockets, and, and then Keith walks out, goes past Eric Clapton, and says, Glad to be of service. So uh, that was a pretty fun night. And uh, so uh, a couple months go by, and you know, Dirty Work comes out in 1986, and Keith is left to promote the album on his own, um, I mean, Mick did, like, a half a day of interviews about it, but mostly, Mick felt, like, I don't want to have anything to do with the Stones anymore, I got my solo career, you know, let Keith do it if he wants to do it, and Keith, of course, wants to do it, so this was backstage at the show, you might remember, Friday Night Videos, used to be on NBC, on Friday nights, and, um, And that is Paul Schaefer. Um, Yeah, by the time uh, 1986 rolled around, Friday Night Videos had um, like a guest host each week. So that week it was Paul Schaefer. And so Paul asked Keith all these questions, and then they jammed on some songs. And one of the songs that Keith performed with Paul Schaefer during the broadcast was Keith's signature song from the Dirty Work album, which was Sleep Tonight. But Keith forgot the lyrics to the song. Um, well, it turns out that I had a copy of the album with me. And the reason I had it with me, I hated asking the Stones for autographs. But it was a necessary evil sometimes because I would run contests in in every issue. So uh, I would get them to sign you know, to these fans. Anyway, so that's why I brought that with me. Uh, you might be able to see it there in the lower right. But anyway... It turns out that the album's inner sleeve has the lyrics printed on it. So I was able to give that to Keith, and he used it as a cheat sheet and was able to conclude the broadcast and sing his song on it. And uh, then afterwards, the three of us went outside and were hanging out with some of the uh, technicians from the show. And we were on the sidewalk. It was a residential area. And I guess we were making a lot of noise maybe. And maybe some people complained because next thing we know, the cops show up and so these two cops they they pull up their squad car and me and Keith seeing like oh my god Keith they're finally coming to get you and these two young cops get out and hey guys can you know keep it down we're getting some phone calls oh my god it's Keith Richards <laughs> you know will you sign this and, you know they're taking out like the things they use for parking tickets probably you know I was like hey Keith sign this um And, uh, and there was a photographer there to shoot the show and I said, you know, the broadcast, so I said to the photographer, you get it, you got to get a shot of this. And, um, to me, this kind of, uh, represents the changing of the guard because, I mean, trust me, the last time Keith Richards was in the presence of two police officers before this night, he was not smiling. And, um... but that's the thing. Now the cops were young enough and, you know, the anti-establishment was becoming the establishment. And I kind of felt that that was captured in that picture. Uh, and, in fact, Keith said something like, uh, when they got back in their squad car, he said to me something like, you know, I bet their fathers on the force probably did bust me, you know. <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't know what these guys would have done if they found out what was in Keith's doctor's <laughs> bag there. Just some medicine that Keith needed. Um, So I was hanging out a lot with Keith and Ronnie at that point, and Ronnie uh, actually hires me to write a book with him, which was called The Works, and it was half of his artwork and half of an autobiography. And that's Ronnie's basement. He lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on West 78th Street. And like I said, uh, the book was half autobiographical half of an art book and so you could see some of his artwork there chuck berry closest to the right keith moon there um over his right shoulder i don't know if you could see but it's bob marley and ronnie would switch off from his music to his art sometimes at the same moment you know i would see him standing there with a guitar and like a paintbrush in his hand um he's a very scattered kind of guy but i think you know In a good way, in an artistic way, and so there's his studio, his uh, his recording studio and rehearsal studio, with a a drum kit there in the back, and uh, you know he's standing there with all his guitars and stuff. So um, this is where like all the action would happen. This was the big hangout place. This was like the club, you know. Uh, And so when I was hanging out with Ronnie overnight, working on our book, you never knew who could ring the doorbell at, like, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. So one time the bell rings, and it's Mick. And Mick says that he wants to record a demo for his next solo album, which, I mean, if Keith had found out that that was taking place there, Keith would have come and strangled them both, you know. Um, Because, like I said, Keith just wanted stone stuff. He doesn't want Mick Jagger to go solo. But anyway, Ronnie's very accommodating. And we go down into this basement, and uh, Ronnie starts rolling tape, and Mick comes up with a song uh, at the time called Soul City, and he asks me to sing backup on it. And I do, and there was only one microphone. So it was uh, Mick in the middle, Ronnie here, and me there, and we're shoulder to shoulder. And uh, I figure this is my chance to uh, do my Mick impersonation for Mick. But unfortunately, I... I guess I got too nervous and I sounded more like Dwight D. Eisenhower. And he had no idea what I was even trying to do. But we had a really fun night. And then at one point, uh, I guess we were blasting the music so loud that uh, the cops came and Ron Wood's wife, you know, told us, hey, you know, someone's at the door. And so Ronwood runs up, Ronnie runs up to see who it is. It turns out it's the cops, leaving me and Mick alone in that room. And Mick, who I was having such a great time with, until like a second ago, all of a sudden turns on me and says, uh, I don't like what you wrote. I don't like it about Live Aid. It's not true. And well, it turns out that Live Aid, which had happened pretty recently, um, I wrote in my newsletter that I didn't think the Stones wanted to do it and that they were emotionally blackmailed into it, to make a long story short. that it, Word got out that they would do it, and all these other bands were reuniting, like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So now if the Stones don't do it, it seems like they backed out of it and they don't care about the starving kids in Ethiopia. And so that was my take on it. Mick didn't like that take, got offended, got right into my face, now that it's just me and him in that basement. He's like, I don't like it, it's not true how dare you, how dare you, and I'm 23 years old at the time, and I have one of the most famous people in the world, like, chewing me out, and I must say, it was very intimidating, and one of my favorite rock stars, too, you know, so it was, it was a little nerve-wracking, but that's Mick for you, and like I said, Mick can be nice to you one minute, and I mean, I saw it all in, in this night, he was really nice, hey, come sing back up with me, and then the next minute, totally chewing me out, and so, that's why Mick is referred to by Keith and Ronnie as a nice bunch of guys. Um, doorbell rings another night, and it's Keith. Well, this happened a few nights, but and Keith walks in at like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and he sits around, and they're just playing acoustic guitars either in that room or up in the kitchen, and it's just the three of us. And, I mean, if you ask me, like, what are some of your favorite moments – of my time around the Stones. That's it. It's the musical moments and moments of just sitting like, at Ron Wood's kitchen table as Keith and Ron Wood are playing acoustic guitars and they're doing Buddy Holly songs or Beatles songs uh, like Day Tripper or you know I'm Gonna Love You Too, Buddy Holly or stuff like that. Those are the best moments. Doorbell rings another night. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning and we're like, who can this be? We're not expecting anyone, and Ronnie's like everything in his life. His uh, the uh, security camera was broken. Everything in Ronnie's life is broken. So the security camera's broken. We have no idea who's standing there. So we open the door, and it's Stevie Ray Vaughan standing there with his guitar strapped on already. No guitar case, no gig bag or anything. He has the guitar already strapped on. To which you know Ronnie inquired. Like, you mean to tell me that you held a taxi like that from your hotel just standing there with your guitar? And of course the answer was yes, uh, you know. And Stevie Ray was bored and, you know, just wanted someone to play with. So he just rings the doorbell at three o'clock in the morning. And that's, you know, Ron Wood's life, you know. You never know who's going to ring the bell. You let them in and that's it. So um, we worked on our book. Somehow we got it done. I, the distractions and uh, Ronnie had uh, this is in London. Ronnie had uh, an art exhibition, one of his first ever, Well, one of his first ever art exhibitions. Bill Wyman came, as you can see, and uh, I am wearing a tie that I got in Greenwich Village that uh, that Ronnie never let me forget. He referred to as soon as I walked in, he said, "Oh, Colonel Kentucky is here," <laughs> and that became my new nickname. Uh, and. He was relentless with that. But anyway, um, but this was a fun night. Mick was in town, but didn't come. you know. And I think Ronnie was a little insulted by that. Mick sent a, um, sent a telegram saying, break a leg, Leonardo. But, uh, but that was it. Mick didn't come. Bill Wyman came, and, and that was it. Um, but after this, uh, Ronnie and I needed to um, pull an all-nighter, because we had an early flight back to the U.S., so we stayed up all night, and uh, during the course of the night... Well, first, I, I tried teaching him baseball, because there was a baseball game on. The World Series was on. 1987, this was... And uh, it was the Cardinals, and uh, I think the Royals, maybe? But anyway, uh, I was trying to teach him baseball, and he just didn't take to it, you know? And he just kept making jokes the whole time. So, like, when the announcer said, you know, two balls on Ozzie Smith, you know, Ron Wood said, I should hope so. <laughs> but anyway... At one point when the baseball game's over, we pop in a uh, video of the pretenders. Uh, well, I mean a bunch of different groups, but the pretenders come on. And Ronnie turns to me and says, uh, I just found out that I shagged Chrissy Hind. <laughs> Wait a second. you What? You just found out that you shagged Chrissy Hind? Now, first of all, the word shagged wasn't part of the lexicon, back, or not American, you know, but I kind of figured out what it meant. The, the part I was curious about was like, what do you mean you just found out that you shagged Chrissy Hine? And so he explained to me that in 1972, when he was playing with Rod Stewart and the Faces, they played in Ohio, where Chrissy Hine is from, and Chrissy and her friend came to the show. After the show, they went back to the hotel. Chrissy's friend wound up with Rod. Chrissy wound up with Ronnie. And uh, it took her fifteen years to tell him that, and I, I thought, hey, that's pretty cool to have bedded Chrissy Hind and not even remember it, you know. So. Um, but uh, Ronnie, you know, he knew so many celebrities, uh, mostly after they were famous, not just like Chrissy Hind, who he knew before she was famous. But um, oh, yeah, well, that's actually that's uh, me and Ronnie at um, the Limelight Nightclub in New York City. Um, which was in a deconsecrated church. And that's in the library, uh, which is nothing like this library. Trust me, I don't even think the books uh, back there were real. I think they were just for decoration because most of the people that hung out in that room probably didn't know how to read. Um, That's where Ronnie met a lot of his drug dealers and stuff like that. It was a very shady place at that time. Now, actually, they turned it into a shopping mall, believe it or not. seriously but anyway um the interesting thing though bringing up the whole drug thing is that I never did drugs with the stones and that's part of what my book is about that I came into this as an innocent kid and I came out of it basically as innocent you know person and um the temptation was there all the cliches were there you know the piles of coke at Ronnie Wood's house all the time um But, as corny as it sounds, I was high on life or high on hanging out with them. That was the high. Being such a big Stones fan and being an aspiring journalist, you know, being in Keith Richards' house or Ron Wood's house or hotel room, whatever, you know, like, I want to remember every detail of this as a fan and as a journalist. So, I don't want to, you know, get high. You know, this is the high. So... Uh, but it created problems sometimes where, like, all these other people that are in the room are doing the cocaine, uh, which was the big drug back then in the 80s, uh, and I'm not, and they would turn to someone like Keith or Ronnie and say, hey, what's the deal with this guy? You know, what is he, a narc? You know, and they would actually defend me. No, no, Bill's just here to interview me, man. You know, he's cool, you know. And, uh, but, you know, created some awkward situations. So as I was saying, Ronnie... um, Knew so many celebrities. Now, uh, he did this portrait of Groucho Marx for our book. Now, he didn't know Groucho personally, but he did know people who knew Groucho. And when Ronnie was living in L.A. in the 70s, he got to go to Groucho's house. And it turns out that it was Groucho's Passover Seder. And uh, Groucho opens the door, sees Ronnie. First thing he says is, now, that's the silliest haircut I've ever seen. And so uh, they hang out uh, for the Passover Seder, and uh, at the end of the night, Groucho walks him to the door. Oh, by the way, I should say the, the reason that Ronnie wound up going is because he was friends with Elliot Gould, who brought him to Groucho's house for the Passover Seder. Um, so they're leaving, and Groucho puts his arm around Ronnie and says, uh, look at all this. Look at all this wealth. I would give it all up. I'd give up every dollar I ever earned if I could just get one more erection. <laughs> so I said, boy, that's a great story, Ronnie, and you have to do a portrait of Groucho so we could put that story in the book. But, you know, he knew so many celebrities. If you're a celebrity, Ronnie Wood wants to hang out with you, for better or, or for worse. And so he had this party in 1986, and... Um, you know, Ronnie had a uh, five-story townhouse there on 78th Street in Manhattan. And the thing about this party, it was interesting how it broke down. Like, on one floor were all the, uh, the artists. So you had Andy Warhol and Peter Max on one floor. Then on another floor, you had the actors. You had Matt Dillon and uh, Michael J. Fox. And then on the ground floor, in the kitchen, you had the musicians like Paul Schaefer, uh, Don Covey, the blues legend I mentioned earlier and, uh, Mick Jones from Foreigner, and so a jam session ensues in the kitchen, uh, because Ronnie had a, uh, piano in his kitchen, so Paul Schaefer starts playing that, and they start doing, like, Fats Domino covers, and Ronnie hears this, grabs his guitar, and he has to join the jam session, at which point, um, Michael J. Fox comes running in, because he hears the music, and, uh, he says, uh, he sees Mick Jones from Foreigner, and he's like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm meeting you, you're my favorite musician of all time, you know, and Ronnie's like, what about me, Uh, but anyway, um, and it was a surprise party, and I showed up late, because I was busy buying birthday presents for the birthday boy, and... um, and so I showed up late, but I would have loved to have seen Andy Warhol jump out from behind the sofa, you know, and yell surprise, but I missed that. But anyway, we go to 1988, and oh, so here's proof that I wasn't a total teetotaler. I do have Jack Daniels. In my glass there, and I should say that I picked up that. Well, I won't call it a habit at all, but I got the taste for Jack Daniels. Hanging out with the Stones in the studio and at their homes and hotel rooms. In fact, I mean, you couldn't really drink anything else when you were hanging out with them. I don't even think they had water. You know, I think like the tap in the kitchen like poured Jack Daniels. So, um, but that's like the extent of what I did. Um, And uh, Keith doesn't look too sober there himself, actually. But this is at a uh, party for his solo album. So he finally relented. After Mick went solo and released two solo albums, Keith said, all right, finally. You know, and at the time, it looked like the Stones were going to break up because of this big feud that they were having. So Keith goes and records his solo album called Talk is Cheap, and this was a party for Talk is Cheap. And um, a few weeks after that party, I uh, had a party of my own. And there I am, wearing the damn Colonel Kentucky tie again, but had a party of my own to celebrate 1988. started the newsletter in 1978. I'm celebrating the 10th anniversary already. and now I'm 26 years old. And um, had this party. I invited um, anybody who ever helped me, you know, like the kid that snuck me into the mimeograph room in high school 10 years earlier, I invited him, uh, just anybody who did anything you know, photographers who helped me out, whoever. And, of course, I wanted to invite the Stones. Now, the only Stone in town was Keith, um, but he had a rehearsal for his solo tour. So Patty Hansen shows up. That's Patty in the middle there. Uh, at that point, she is his wife for five years. And that's Sarah Dash, who uh, was one of Keith's backup singers for his solo album. Uh, and uh, you may know her better. She was a member of LaBelle, you know, voulez vous coucher à you know. So she was in that group. Uh, and Keith has known her since like, she was a teenager back in the 60s when she played uh, with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. Anyway, so they come to the party. Patti um, sends her regrets to me, saying, You know, Keith really would love to come, but he can't because he does have this rehearsal and all that. And I said, That's fine, I understand. And uh, I wind up giving a speech. And I tell all my guests, uh, you know, thank you for coming. You know, the reason I invited, invited you here is because you helped me in some way in the past 10 years. And then I made a little joke, which was like, I know some of you are here cause you think that one of the stones is coming, but I'm sorry, that's not happening. So ha ha ha. And, uh, well, the joke was on me because Keith was standing there the whole time and I didn't see it cause the lights were in my eyes. And, um, Maybe you could even tell from the expression on my face how touched I was that he came. It was really nice. You know, here I was going to Stones parties or trying to go to Stones parties since I'm a kid. And here's Keith coming to my party, which was really, really nice of him. Um, But that's the kind of guy Keith is. Uh, So there were two people that I almost didn't invite to my party, and that's my parents. Now, I love my parents. I don't think I've ever had a single argument with my parents to this day um but they were you know at that point they were like in their mid-50s this party is for young people and they're in their mid-50s they, they don't fit into this party and they're gonna wear those clothes that they wear and talk that way that they do and I don't know but then I realized like they're so proud of me they have like a shrine to me in their dining room they have uh All these pictures of me with the stones and like uh, covers of the newsletter and frames and all that. I was like, no, you know what? They are so proud of me. I have to invite them, and whatever happens, happens. So they do come, and um, didn't even cross my mind to uh, to uh, introduce them to Keith. Like, why would my parents, who you know love like Fiddler on the Roof, you know, why would they care to meet Keith Richards? but I was wrong, because they knew how important Keith was in my life. And so I was so busy at this party that, you know, I didn't think to introduce them. But they introduced themselves. <laughs> and so there's uh, Keith. There's Bernie, big Bernie there, and my mom, Sylvia, on the right. Um, and uh, that's Keith's manager, Jane Rose, over there. And uh, they're being paparazzi there, there, uh, and... Uh, I found out what happened from eyewitnesses, uh, which is that Keith was walking through the room at one point, which Keith was great this night. I mean, anybody who came kind of got a door prize, in a sense. You got to shake his hand or an autograph or get your picture taken with him. He was so nice to all my guests and so gracious and patient. So um, what happened was uh, Keith is walking through the room. My dad sees him, grabs him on the shoulder and says, uh, Hey, Keith, we're Bill's parents. To which Keith replies, well, you've got quite a boy there. <laughs> and uh, later I went up to Keith and I said, uh, Keith, just so you know that I'm pretty sure this is a sign of the apocalypse. You meeting my parents, the two kosher deli workers from Brooklyn. But um, they were so happy to meet them, and maybe vice versa. I don't know. And so the funny thing is, is that now they got like more pictures to put in the big shrine, but they're in them. So now there's pictures of Bernie and Sylvia and Keith in their big shrine. So like I said, that was um, 1988. And then we moved to 1989, and the stones do get back together. That's my big issue at the beginning of the Steel Wheels tour, uh, which was sort of their reunion tour. And they got paid a $65 million advance, which at that time was outrageous. Um, The tour went on to gross $300 million, which was also outrageous at the time. Broke all kinds of, you know, attendance and gross records. Um, And I had a great time on the tour overall. um, But um, once the big money got involved, things started to change in the organization. And uh, it got a little harder to write about them and to cover them or even just to score an interview with them. Like, you know, here was Ron Wood, who I... Pretty much lived with for a year to write our book together, and now I had to go through a publicist just to interview him um, you know so little things like that, and I understand you know that there's so many people that demand the stone 's time, um, but it just got harder for me and a little less fun, and um, especially once the money got involved I mean I, I got disheartened by the fact they did some shows in Atlantic City where they charged two hundred and fifty dollars a ticket, and that was you know face value, not the scalper's price so Um, you know, stuff like that really started to, you know, disenchant me. And, uh, as well as the fact that, you know, I got to go backstage and, um, actually watch some of the shows from on stage and I would get to see how the magicians did their tricks. So it kind of ruined some of the mystique, you know, it's better not knowing how the magicians do their tricks. So, you know, all those things kind of, um, conspired to make me have like less fun, doing this for a living. Um, And, you know, Mick got moodier because now the stakes are higher. There's more money involved. And so they just kept trying to inflict their will more and more. You know, the lawyers and the accountants and Mick and the people that worked for Mick and all that. So, you know, I kept, like I said, I had a great time on the Steel Wheels tour through America. And then they went to Europe in 1990. And then I, they all went solo in between that, and I followed their solo careers. And then they did the Voodoo Lounge tour in 1994, 95, you know, uh, which opened here at R, well, close to here, RFK Stadium. Um, but after that, I decided like that's enough. And so after 17 years of doing the fanzine, the newsletter, um, I, you know, I, I had enough as a career. Uh, you know, still a big Stones fan, but I don't have to write about them or deal with their machinery anymore was really what it was, and it had been more than half my life. I was 33 years old at that time, started it when I was 16. you know. So I did it for 17 years. So I ended it uh, in January of 1996. And uh, Mick and Keith and Ronnie all did some like, nice uh, farewell letters. Ronnie did a little drawing, too. Uh, so that's me walking away uh, with my briefcase BB for Beggar's Banquet. Um, I'm eating a banana because that was an inside joke that Ronnie and I had. Whenever I was hanging out in his kitchen, he would offer me a banana from the fruit bowl. And, uh, and so, yeah, And he writes, uh, Dear Bill, we shall miss the great instructional monthly very much. How will we know from now on where we all are and what each of us has been up to? I mean, they really would use my newsletter to find out what they were all up to. Um, Don't disappear too long. We want you near for the next thing. Um, And so that was really nice and very touching. Um, But, you know, I I gave it up. I have no real regrets about giving it up. You know, 17 years, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Many more ups than downs, but it's all captured in the book. I pull no punches in the book. Um, And the book also uh, captures a time period that's really not captured in other Stone's books, which is that mid-80s period. I mean, it goes from... Uh, the 70s into the mid-90s, uh, well, actually, even a little later, I have an epilogue, which goes up to, until, like, the present day, but, um, but the, the, the main gist of it, um, you know, goes for 17 years, and, uh, and it, it includes that period in the 80s where the Stones were on the brink of a breakup, and so my book is the only book that really kind of discusses that. Uh, I don't even think Keith's new book really goes into it as much as I do, um, And how they turned it around from almost breaking up to getting back together and breaking records and still being around, which is, I think, a great thing. Uh, Another thing that's unique about the book is is the perspective. And like I said, I was this innocent kid going into it, never did drugs. I'm hanging out with the most notorious rock band in the world, never did drugs. But it created some of these spinal tap-like moments and moments of, you know, Keith Richards meeting my parents. And so, you know, I... I hope, uh, if you got the book, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed the little presentation here. And if you have any questions, throw them on up. Anybody? Oh, thank you. (laughs) Uh, In the back there. Yes, you. Oh, Oh, good question. Well, Charlie's actually kind of a running joke throughout the book in a way, although it really is true. Charlie, I've met a few times. But he is a very introverted guy. And he could be good with fans, you know, in the moment if you go and ask him for an autograph or something like that. But I was in some really intimate situations with him. And I, I never said more than a few words to him and vice versa. Uh, because he's a bit of a British eccentric and just extremely introverted. I mean, as far as being an eccentric, supposedly, you know, he raises horses. Supposedly, him and his wife let the horses roam through the house uh, which is a hell of a clean-up job, I'm sure. But, you know, he's, he's, he collects cars, but he doesn't drive. Um, you know, so I just, I always felt that he was not interested in this kid from Brooklyn, you know. Uh, and so I never really struck up a conversation with him. I tried to interview him three times. I have a whole chapter about that in the book, where things just conspired one time, believe it or not. Bill Clinton got in the way, long story, and we wound up not having our interview. Um And so it's just like, it's a running joke throughout the book. Like all these uh, times I kept missing my opportunity to kind of befriend Charlie. And some of it also was geographical. Uh, You know, I got to hang out with Mick and Keith and Ronnie because they lived in New York. Bill and Charlie were in England. Um, But, you know, I I did develop a friendship with Bill Wyman. And um, he was always nice. But I I was never near as close to Bill Wyman, let alone Charlie, uh, because of, you know, the ocean in the middle of us. Uh, Any other questions? Uh, Well, hopefully they're going to get ready to tour. Um, Supposedly, you know, Keith just put out his autobiography. Ronnie Wood just put out a solo album. Um, And they're supposed to meet in December, supposedly, and have a summit and discuss their future. Um, You know, we'll see what happens. I personally think that they'll go out one more time at least. Uh, And, you know, 2012 is their 50th anniversary. Can you believe it? And actually... 2013 is when Charlie, you know, would be 50 years of when Charlie Watts joined the band. So I could see them doing like a two-year tour that starts in 2011 and take it to 2013. I mean, I don't know, you know, and, um, you know, some of this has to do with their health, which, I mean, I haven't heard anything, but, you know, uh, it has to do with also the health of the economy. You know, can you get the $450 that they charge? You know, I don't know, but that is what they charge. And like I said, that's one of the things that disheartened me and, you know they could charge whatever they want. I'm a capitalist, but uh, you know it kind of takes the fun out of it, and, or it takes the rock and roll out of it. Um, you know, and and it's hard for me because I hear from fans all the time who tell me they can't afford to go. Uh, these are fans who you know have been with them for you know 30, 40, f- almost 50 years. Some of them and now they can't afford to go to a Stones concert. So, you know, that's, like, a little disappointing. Having said that, I do think Keith would do it for free. I really do. Mick wouldn't, but Keith would. But at the same time, Keith loves making the money, and I think a lot of it is the competition of it. He loves to, you know, get that issue of Forbes magazine every year That's you know, has the highest grossing rock tours or whatever, and he wants to, Keith even, you know, and especially Mick, wants to see the Stones number one ahead of, Springsteen, U2, and Madonna. Yes? I, I imagine that you know, these guys are your, you know, your heroes, and but you spend all this time with them. Eventually, your perspective sort of shifts. You get to a point where you, you almost feel like these are like regular people, yeah. and then you have that moment where you, you think, wait a minute, I see some flaws in them. <laughs> and I'm assuming that happens based on what you're saying, but were there times... Uh, if you can describe how that happened a little bit or like if there were moments, well, there was never anything that was like a deal breaker, you know, uh, you just, you see flaws, you know, uh, I mean, some of it is just as simple as the drug addictions. It's like, wow, you know, these guys and they have families, they have kids, you know, um, and I'm glad, I mean, one topic I never asked Keith directly and I asked him some pretty tough questions. I, I, I interviewed Keith like five or six times. Um, but I never asked him about the child of his that died at two months old in 1976. And I'm glad he addresses it in his book and says that it's like one of the biggest regrets in his life. Um, and that he says in his book that he doesn't even know where the baby is buried or if it's buried. And it's like, wow, you know? So like, yeah, yeah, he's flawed. You know, and I love Keith, man. He's, he's my favorite in the band. But uh, you know, the guy had a drug addiction and was so messed up in the 70s that you know he, he left to go on the road didn't care about this 2 month old baby at home who dies and Keith doesn't even know what happens to the body I mean like wow you know so yeah they're flawed but you know one of the things Keith himself taught me early on and he uh, it was when I was interviewing him about his experience with Chuck Berry he said that he learned early on because Chuck Berry he said was a total asshole <laughs> and James Brown also but he said, "Well, actually, his quote about Chuck Berry is that I couldn't warm up to that guy if I was cremated next to him." <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but Keith is the person that said to me, like, that he learned early on that just because you idolize someone or you love their art doesn't mean you have to love them as a person. And, uh, but uh, having said that, I do let, from my relationship with Keith and Ronnie. I do love them as people. You know, I didn't know Keith in the 70s, and the Keith that I knew was a family guy. I mean, he's really a family guy now. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, they're lovable guys, but flawed, you know, like any one of us, really. Yes, sir? Uh, number one, congratulations on the, um, on the book. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I commend you for staying sober through um, the whole experience. You know, it might have been uh, the picture I showed, Bernie and Sylvia. You know, I didn't really, you know, I, I talk about my parents in the book, and my dad, like the restraint that he had, he really could stop at one potato chip. I mean, that's the metaphor I use. But he was the kind of guy who would have maybe like one drink a month or something. And that's sort of like how I am. I'll have, you know, if I'm out to dinner or something. But like I said, really, it's that I was just so high on life, as corny as it sounds, and hanging with them. I was also scared, by the way, that, um, that I would pull that scene from Annie Hall with Woody Allen, if you ever saw that, where they put, uh, this is $2,000 worth of cocaine, oh, thank you, chew. you know, and it all goes out. So I, I think I might have been scared of that, too. I did interview Bill once, and, um, and I do a whole chapter about that interview in the book. Um, And he loved being a member of the Stones. He believed in the Stones up until 1990 when he left, when he felt like he had accomplished everything he wanted to. He also had a fear of flying, so he didn't want to do that anymore. But he loved the Stones. Obviously, he had a lot of frustrations. He did do a couple of solo albums in the 70s and then more in the 80s and 90s. um, About Keith, Uh, I think Mick and Keith just had this Jagger Richards thing that they had to stick to. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there you know, when that song was written. So I don't know if what Bill Wyman is saying is true or not. I, I As it happens, I never asked Bill or Keith about that, so I don't know. Um, you know, I know Bill and Keith have very differing viewpoints about a lot of things, you know, and, and Bill has mentioned some of those to me. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, Keith loves to say, I don't know if it's in his book and Keith's new book, but Keith used to go around saying in his interviews that, um, you know, it's a nice way to phrase it, but he says, you know, Hitler dropped a V1 bomb on my bed, man, you know. And uh, Bill Wyman, who's older than Keith, said that's chronologically impossible that a bomb would have wound up in Keith's neighborhood when he was, you know, uh, at the time that he was born, you know. It's just impossible. So, you know, there's a lot of little differences, but, you know, Bill has his book. Keith has his book. I got my book, you know. So we all have differing, you know, viewpoints, I guess. I mean, the thing is, it's like some of the stuff that's really not ranked up there by fans. But yeah, that whole Dirty Work album, like I've Had It With You, the songs like that, um, because that kind of epitomizes my time of when I was closest to them, you know, and, and maybe it's because Keith was sort of going through this... Uh, Midlife crisis, or whatever, he didn't know what was happening with the Stones, and so he needed friends like me, you know. And so he let me, how old was I then? 22 years old when they were recording that the Dirty Work album, letting me hang out. So those are some of my fondest memories, even though that was probably like the worst period in Stones' history, um, you know, in terms of their relationship. And some would say creatively, some people say Dirty Work is like one of their worst albums. But I have the fondest memories. Of that album, You know, I feel like almost I have a personal stake in it almost because I was up at the studio so much and, you know, was so close to Keith and Ronnie at that time. Uh No, no, but when they got that Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys, Harlem Shuffle was shown, the video for Harlem Shuffle. And th- that's actually why they were willing to accept that Lifetime Achievement Award because for two minutes they would get free airtime and that's what that whole thing was about. Yes, back there. I was hoping that you'd... Uh touch on um ian stewart uh, next month he's been gone for 25 years yeah. you had the opportunity to interview him when he was promoting the uh rocket 88 album i yeah. was curious if you could touch on uh, ian and your experiences um yeah and in the book i didn't show it tonight but in the book there's a picture of me uh interviewing him for the first time when i was just 18 years old um and I—it was funny because I had already met the Stones at that point, you know, you know the other Stones, Mick and Keith and Ronnie—and yet the one that I was intimidated by the most was Ian Stewart. And the reason is he was such a purist. And like I said, he was one of the founding members of the band, or if not the founding member, some would say. Um, in fact, yeah, he's been known as the sixth Stone, but he told me that chronologically he was the second Stone. It was Brian Jones and then him. But. Um, he was a purist. He loved his boogie-woogie jazz music. He loved rhythm and blues. And he was the only person who could actually ridicule the Stones, and they would take it from him because they had such respect for him. Um, and so I go to meet him, and I was intimidated because he's such a purist. He actually, not only has he like, put down the Stones, his friends, but he's also put down the Beatles, one saying that it goes to show you how nothing good ever came out of Liverpool. That was his quote about the Beatles. So it's like, okay, this guy thinks that the Stones and the Beatles suck. Like, what is he going to say about me, or some 18-year-old kid from Brooklyn? But it turns out he was, like, so nice and warm uh, and taught me about, like, boogie-woogie music that I, like, had never even heard of, and artists like Louis Jordan and Wynoni Harris. Uh, so he was, like, really nice. And uh, when he died, I was uh, very sad And I think, like, a lot of Stone's history died with him because he, you know, kept some of the records maybe not as well as Bill Wyman, but, you know, maybe in some ways. And so, you know, he could could have told a lot of great stories that, you know, we would have appreciated today, like in a book, let's say, but he never got to do that. Again, you know, this book is full of highs and lows. Um, But right, in December of 85, Ronnie Wood hires me, 23 years old I am, which, like... I look back now, I'm in my 40s, like, I wouldn't hire a 23-year-old kid to, you know, co-author a book with me. But he did. I come home, I can't wait to tell everybody, and I fall asleep for a couple of hours, my phone rings, and then it's the news from England that Ian Stewart passed away at just the age of 47, which, you know, like, it was this incredible, cruel irony, because he's the one who didn't do the heroin and the coke and all the booze, like Keith and Mick and Ronnie. And he's the one that dies, and it was hardening of the arteries. So uh, Bill Wyman actually said to me, you know, kind of like a dark joke, he said, that's it, I'll never eat cheeseburgers again, you know, because those were his only vices was playing golf and eating cheeseburgers.
0: I think we're going to, excuse me, but I think we're going to wind it up here, and um, let's give Bill a big round of applause. Thank you.